everybody. Now we've got no children today, do we? That want to go to children's church? Okay, well, in that case, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Matthew 16, 13 to 20. So let's start off with prayer. So Father, we commit this to you, and we ask, Lord God, uh, you'd help me to convey what it is you want to convey today. And uh, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the exposition of it, or whatever we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we read in Matthew 16, 13 to 20. When Jesus came into the reason of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or, none of the, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you, are the, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed, on heaven, will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. So we begin with Jesus asking who do men or who do people say that he is? And it's interesting to note that when he asks this question, he does so in the way, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And it's interesting to know that because he gives part of the answer in the question he asks. The Son of Man is taken to mean fully human, that he is fully human. And this is, it's said, one of the titles, or the title rather, I should say, that is favoured by Jesus. He has other titles. The Son of God, of course. The Son of David. <coughs> but here we see him using the Son of Man. The one which denotes his full humanity. Because the very purpose, <coughs> excuse me, the very purpose of him becoming human was to rescue us, as it were. He didn't come to rescue us from oppressive governments. In those days, of course, the Romans were very oppressive, just like all the empires before them and just like what came after them and most of the governments of the world today. But he didn't come to save us from oppressive governments. He came rather to save us from the oppression of sin, the oppression of sin in our own lives and the effects that it has on us and the effects that it has on others. He came to pave the way for us to um, go or go straight to God, or open the way for us to uh, have forgiveness for our sins. And he had to become a full human being for that. Now, he could have come down from heaven and just appeared to us at the age of 30, a full biological human being. But he didn't. He went through the whole works, as it were. He became um, 
from inception to birth to growing up to when he finally came into his ministry at the age of 30. We don't know much about Jesus before or much about his life before he became, uh, came into his ministry. We know that about the story about when they went to Jerusalem and he was 12 years old and his mother, and they were looking for him, they left him behind and his mother said to him when they found him, what were you doing? And he said, did you not know I was to be about my father's business? We know about that and little signs like that, but we don't know much about his life, but he was fully human. So that is why it is noteworthy that he puts that in there in the question. <clears throat> so who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so his disciples give various answers. This is what the people are saying about him. He's done great miracles at this point, and um, people are obviously talking. They say, well, he can't just be an ordinary human being, people say, so he must be something like Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist come back from the dead, or he's one of the other prophets. In other words, he's not just a normal human being. He's something divine in the sense that he's a resurrected or revised or whatever, reincarnated, I don't think they would use those words, but resurrected version of one of the prophets, or John the Baptist. He can't just be ordinary human. That's quite clear. So that's what people are saying, and that's fine. But then Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, this is very important, <clears throat> because the word but is, denotes something that is introduced that is on contrast to what has come before. Yes, so this is what everyone else is saying, then that's fine. But in contrast to that, I want to know what you say. But what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And this is the pivotal part of the conversation because this is the part of the confession. Your confession about who Jesus is. So who do you say Jesus is? Now, Peter answers this question. The previous question was answered by the disciples. We don't know who answered the previous question. But it was Peter who answered this question. And we know about Peter. We know that he's quite impetuous. He was the first one out of the boat and walking on the water. And, um, and he was fine on the water until he started to sink because he looked at the waves. When he was looking at Jesus, he was fine. He was walking along and all was well. But as soon as he started to look at the waves, he began to sink. And there's a, a, a valuable lesson for us in that. The valuable lesson being, Look to the Lord, not to your circumstances, because if you look to your circumstances, you will sink. And that's not the point of the sermon today, but it's a good thing to dwell on in giving an example of Peter's impetuosity. He gets at first out of the boat and um, sinking when he's looking at his circumstances. Peter, I believe, was the first one out of the boat when they saw the risen Lord on the shore. Peter was the first one to say that he would not be scattered like the flock. Well, he would not be part of the scattered flock. Jesus said, you will all be scattered um, when they strike the shepherd. Peter said, no. Jesus said, you will actually deny me three times. So Peter was very quick to volunteer for things. And if you think about him, I don't know if you've ever come across this sort of thing before, but I have come across situations, I'm pretty sure I have, 
maybe Bible in schools, you ask a question of a young audience of eight-year-olds or whatever, and there's always one who puts his hand up. It's usually a boy. Um, I'm not wanting to, you know, have stereotypes here, but it seems to me to be usually a boy, because girls' brains develop quicker. But anyway, <coughs> so you ask a question of the class, and up goes the hand, because this child wants to be involved. And you ask a question, and yes, Jimmy, um, if there's anyone called Jimmy in here, I not talking to you. Yes, pupil. And um, he will stare at you as if he is a possum in the headlights because he doesn't know the answer. He just wants to be involved. Or he'll answer something ridiculous. Like he'll say, oh, I don't know. Or, why did you put your hand up then? Don't know. Or you'll say, what's the capital of England? Up goes the hand. Yes. Anyway, I don't know that that's specifically happened, but there is, a, there is a sense in which Peter is like this. Absolutely has to be the first one to be involved, and it doesn't always work out well. Sinking into the water, denying the Lord three times, and this is no different. So anyway, Peter this time is the first one to answer, you are, um, you are Jesus, what did he, sorry, what did he say? He specifically said, you right, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Sorry, I couldn't quite remember. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, he is saying, the Son of Almighty God, the Eternal, the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, Yahweh. That is what he is saying. And for that, Jesus blesses him for correctly stating who he is. Because the knowledge has not been revealed, because the knowledge has been revealed to him by God. Maybe he asked specifically, who do people say I am? Sort of to compare what the general consensus is with what the disciples' real beliefs were. He wanted to see, well, are they being influenced by what's around them? Or do they actually believe that he is the Messiah? And so, Jesus blesses Peter because flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but his Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to say something quite extraordinary and quite controversial through the ages. Because Jesus says that Peter, or seems to say that Peter is the rock upon which the church will be built, upon which I will build my church. And so, there are, th there are well, I don't know how many interpretations there are of this, but I've got three. And the first one you might call the classic interpretation, or the Catholic interpretation. And I have to be careful here. Then the Catholic interpretation, as I understand it, is that Peter is the first pope, and that there is a long line, unbroken down the 2,000 years through the church age, which connects Peter with the current Pope Francis. And therefore, the Pope is God's vicar on earth, and he is the representative of Jesus on earth, the one who interprets scripture and all that sort of thing. So that is what we might call the classic interpretation. And I doubt there's anyone here who believes that, and I, I am quite sure that there are a few people here who vehemently oppose it. And that's fine. I don't know. No, I do know. I, I, don't, I don't agree with it either. Um, I'm just joking. Now, the second one 
is a play on words or an interpretation which has Jesus playing on words and Jesus did a lot of word play um, to illustrate points and it's that uh, the word Peter here is Petros or a pebble and the word that Jesus uses for the rock is Petra so you've got Peter the pebble and Petra or the rock now there's a city an old ancient city in Jordan called Petra which is hewn out of rock I've not been there but Helen and three of us did Johnny and Hannah and Leah and Granny went there uh, some years ago and it is quite spectacular a city which is hewn out of rock called Petra so that is rock and Jesus said you are Peter I you are a little pebble but upon this rock pointing to himself Petra I will build my church and the gate and the um, Hades will not prevail against it so that's the second interpretation and the third interpretation is that Peter's confession of faith is the rock upon which Jesus will build the church church is made up of many believers and it is their confession as it were that is uh, that is the rock upon which the church is built so I'm not sure they the argument we can discount interpretation one and um, do does it does it matter which one it is number two or number three I don't know and that's not the central point except to say that it's not the Catholic interpretation some argue that um, the second interpretation is just a, a way of avoiding the so-called Catholic interpretation that it, that it is in fact the confession Peter's confession and we know that Peter and the Apostles do have a big role in the early church personally I'm inclined to number two but the point is that whatever the answer is we can safely say that Peter is not the rock is not literally the rock upon which Jesus builds his church because later on Peter does it again he's too impetuous and we read that just a few verses later Peter is soundly rebuked so we pick that up in uh, Matthew 16 21 to 23 so after all this discussion we read from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day now Peter uh, sorry Jesus here is describing his suffering before Herod before Pilate before the chief priests and so on and so forth he's showing that he's showing his crucifixion and the fact that he will be raised from the dead on the third day he's showing everything that is going to happen but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying far be it from you Lord this shall not happen to you so in other words Peter was saying in his absolute love for the Lord totally misguided that you will not come you will you will not go through what God has ordained for you to go through and thus um, save humanity from their sins but Jesus turned to him and said to Peter get behind me Satan you are an offense to me for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of of men so Jesus has just blessed Peter a few verses earlier and um, for confessing that Jesus is the Christ hmm. 
Right, sorry, I'm just making sure I'm in the right place. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, <coughs> the Son of the living God, a few verses earlier. And of course it wasn't verses back then, it would be a few moments earlier, or maybe a day or so earlier. And now here he is being rebuked. Get thee behind me, Satan, because he has savoured the things of men. He has looked at this from a human point of view. He hasn't understood what Jesus actually came to do. He confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand what it is that Jesus is to do. So he hasn't really understood Jesus at all. And he's looked at it humanly, and of course, looking at it from a human point of view, well, you say you're going to be killed, we're not going to let that happen to you. We're not going to let you go to Jerusalem and be uh, scourged and suffer in front of the leaders and the elders of the land and then be killed, etc. And he didn't, obviously didn't quite hear about the rising on the third day because then he would have understood that it wasn't a permanent thing. That death would not permanently take Jesus, that he would have victory over death. So here we see that Peter's confession was not backed up by his actions. His confession was betrayed by later on actions, by his impetuosity, by his impetuous running in, not literally running in, but running in as, as it were and saying, no, you will not, that will not happen to you. And we're going to, subtext is, we're not going to let this happen to you. And that is why he was soundly rebuked, because he did not save the things of God, but he looked at it from a human point of view. Right, so... Peter's not the rock, and Peter's confession did not, did not uh, match up to his, Peter's action, sorry, did not match up to his confession. So, ultimately then, whether or not the rock is the confession of the believers or the confession of the church or whatever, ultimately I think we can argue that it is Jesus who is the rock. You cannot have a rock that is so tempestuous as, as Peter is. Jesus is ultimately the rock. And there are several other places in Scripture that show us that it is Jesus who is the rock, not, um, not, some, not Peter, even though he was a powerful apostle. If we look at 1 Peter 2, 6-7, ironically, the letter that Peter wrote sometime later on, 1 Peter 2, 6-7, we read, Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. So it, asks, so it begins actually from verse 4 by saying, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture. So the chief cornerstone, the rock upon which this church is being built, is in this passage quite clearly Jesus. He is the rock upon which um, the church is being built. The anchor for that building. And we can see in Matthew 7.24, there very quickly, Matthew 7, 24. 
Therefore, now, at this point, Jesus has um, been speaking to the crowd over many, many things. And in relation to all of that, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains came, floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so Jesus, by likening someone to building their house on the rock, by likening that person who listens to his words being likened to someone who builds their house on the rock, I think we can say that the rock in this case is Jesus himself. That, we, that the church is built on the rock of Christ and that we build our own lives on the rock that is Jesus. So what is the characteristics of a rock when we're looking at Jesus, who Jesus is in, in this respect? So the characteristics of a rock, <clears throat> well, the word, in some ways, the word has been a little bit sullied in recent years. About the rock, there's some famous star in America they call the rock. I can't remember who he is. I know if I can, I can't remember his name. Then there's the rock FM. Then there's rock music, rock and roll, etc. But that doesn't mean to say that the word rock in relation to the Lord is any less valuable just because the word has been taken to taken to mean something else. We could say the same about rainbow. We know. Um, the rainbow is something that God instituted as a promise that he would not flood the earth again and that it is from the Lord. It doesn't mean that rainbow now, just because it's been corrupted in some ways, it doesn't mean the original meaning is any less meaningful. So when we think about a rock, what are the characteristics of that? So when you look at a stream or a river, think about rocks that sometimes are beside the river. Um, I only think of that because there's a picture, I, I can't remember, there's a picture of me and my brother back in when we were about three or four, or he was three and I was seven or something, like six or something, sitting on a rock by a stream, little stream that we used to go as a family for picnics in Dartmoor, in Devon, which is in the southwest of England. And there is the rock. And I dare say that that rock is exactly the same today how many, however many years later, 40 odd years later, 45 years later, to what it was back in 1975, or where thereabouts. For some of you, 1975 is ancient history. For some of you, 1975 was your heyday. For me, uh, ancient history in the sense that you weren't even born. For me, it was when I was a little. It was a long time ago, but anyway. Um, Yes, anyway, so basically the rock is this exactly the same. It doesn't matter, you know, streams and rivers are very fluid things, as you know. They're full of water. They're very temperamental. A river can be a trickle. One summer, you can look at a river, and there is this trickling along. The Rangatiki River sometimes is not much more than a trickle. And the Tutanui stream down the road sometimes is completely and utterly dry. Especially during the summer, it often just dries up and there's nothing flowing in it. 
And then five, six months later, it's in complete flood and the paddocks around it are completely flooded. That hasn't really happened this year because it's been drier than normal. But usually each winter it will flood at least once. So it's completely temperamental. A stream, so it can be anywhere between a complete trickle, not a complete trickle, a, a little trickle and a complete flood and anywhere in between. But the rock that is beside the river or a mound or a boulder or whatever is immovable. And it remains the same. The river can be next to the rock. It can be ages away from the rock. It can submerge the rock. But whatever happens when that flood passes over that rock is still the same. And if you look at the mountains, the ranges going towards Palmerston North, you've got the, uh, the Ruahinis on the left and the Tararuas on the right, I think, and bounded, uh, boundary would be the gorge, I think, probably, but whatever. Those mountains are exactly the same today as they were a hundred years ago. There's been some features changed on them. Houses have been added here and there, windmills added here and there, maybe some deforestation, probably deforestation, but essentially the essential shape of those mountains is the same. It doesn't matter what's going on, those mountains are the same. And the same with other mountain ranges, they, they are the same. Hitler, and Hitler, for example, built his house, Bergenstaaten or whatever it's called, in or the eagle's nest up in the mountains of Bavaria back in the 1930s. And those mountains will be the same today as they were then. When Nazism was the, all the rage, those mountains were the shape they are. Now that things are completely different in Germany and green politics and political correctness is all the rage, those mountains are still the same. They don't change. And it's th that is how God is. It doesn't matter what's going on around us, it doesn't matter what the rage is, what the trend is, it doesn't matter what's in, what's out, what's in vogue, what's out of vogue, and so on and so forth. God is the same. He is the same yesterday, the same today, and he will be the same tomorrow. He will not know any more tomorrow than he did yesterday. He will be no more holy tomorrow than he was yesterday. He will not learn anything because he knows everything. God is unchangeable and he is immovable, and that's why it's folly to try and try and um, update the Bible in light of our latest discoveries and all that sort of thing, because God doesn't change. But the world does change, as we know. The world changes greatly. Um, there are, in fact, there are only they say there are only two things that are certain in this world: death and taxes. And I would say. The third thing is change. It is absolutely certain that change takes place at all times. The world is very fluid. The world is like those rivers. They are up and down and all over the place, depending on who's, who's in control at a particular time and what nonsense they want to foist on to us. But change is something that we see throughout the Bible. You see, in the Bible, the story is about change. God's plan of redemption was because of things changing. And the first big change, of course, was in the Garden of Eden. When God created the Garden of Eden, when God created the earth, it was good, it was perfect. He created the first man and the first woman, and it was all perfect. But the big change was when sin came in, when they succumbed to temptation. And of course, this was a huge fundamental change. The biggest change because it brought sin into the world and created evil well, created evil in the world, and um, eventually led to God having to wipe out human humanity at that time, apart from eight people in the flood. The second great change 
the world was so wicked that God repented of creating it. He was sorry he created the world. And so he flooded the world and the only people saved were Noah and his family. And so the second great change, and the third, well, I don't know whether that's the second great change, but the second key change, and the third key change, the Tower of Babel. Before that, everyone spoke the same language, and then the languages were mixed up because God did not want people to become like him and know all things, as it were. So one minute you have one language, then hundreds, thousands of different languages, or whatever. And the rate of change accelerates, it seems, over time. If you look at the change between Abraham and Jesus, that 2,000 years, wasn't a great deal of change technologically. I mean, it was, I mean, I guess if you were an ancient historian or a historian of ancient history, then you would probably be able to point out some quite big changes between the time of Abraham and the time of Jesus. But to me, it all just seems like chariots and horses. And yes, there was underground heating when the Romans came along and they built some roads. Um, but I don't think there was... <laughs> you can't say that the change between Abraham and Jesus equals the change between Jesus and today. If you look at the change between the time of Jesus and the 15th century, there was a printing press which um, changed things quite dramatically, the dissemination of ideas. And then suddenly, in the 19th century, the train appeared, as it were. And after horses and carts for thousands of years, suddenly we have the train. And instead of taking 30 hours from, to get from London to York, it takes a mere five hours. And there's a revolutionary change. And then the car comes along, and suddenly the horse and cart, which has been the key form of transport for thousands of years, is suddenly out the window or in the knacker's yard. And so big changes take place. So the whole point of that is in the midst of all that, in the maelstrom of change over the years, in the ebbing and flowing of ideas and so on and so forth, God is the same. And he is the rock to which we must cling. So God never changes. God is the same today as he was yesterday as he will be tomorrow. He is the rock upon which we must cling and base our lives. But despite that, God expects us to change. So change can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, it depends on the nature of that change, but God expects us to change. Not in the sense that we're up and down like a yo-yo and we're with this thing one day, that thing the next day. He expects us to be moving in a specific direction. That direction is towards him and that we become more like him. Now some people say, they say, oh, you're either going forwards or you're going backwards. Status quo isn't an option anymore. There are some people in this life who just love change for the sake of it. I'm, I don't particularly like change myself. Um, <coughs> to be perfectly honest with you, I would be quite happy. Anyway, no, we won't go there. But anyway, it's, um, but cliche it may be. It may be a cliche to say you're either going forwards or backwards. But like a lot of cliches, there's some truth to it. And the, the question must be asked, if you're not growing, if you're not becoming more like the Lord, what's actually happening? What's, actu what's actually happening in your life? So, if you're not growing more like Him, you're, you're, something's happening because 
the, just staying exactly the same doesn't seem to be possible because we're surrounded by influences all the time. We're surrounded by the news, we're surrounded by ideas, we're surrounded by what people say, and try as we might, we're always influenced, we're always somewhat infected by the spirit of the age. And so if you're not growing to be more like Jesus, if you're not reading his word, if you're not um, spending time with the Lord, or quality time with the Lord, then you're going to be affected in other ways that you may not even realize. So if you're not growing more like Jesus, what is actually happening in your life? So it's not about being changeable, it's not about this, that, it's about moving in the right direction towards God. Becoming more like his son, to becoming conformed to the likeness of his son. So not only do we need to cling to the rock in times of trouble, but not only in times of trouble, in all times, but it's particularly, um, particularly, you feel particularly that you need to cling to the Lord in times of trouble, but we should be clinging to him at all times. Not only are we to cling to the rock, we are to become more like the rock. And at the same time, we are to make sure that our actions are backed up by our confession. And unlike Peter, who proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, and then a few verses later, completely contradicts what Jesus came to earth to do. Let us not be like that. Let our confession be backed up by our actions. Let's not let what's going on around us affect how we view the Lord. Let how we view the Lord be determined by our relationship with God. So, Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day, and I do ask that you would, um, that this word would serve its purpose, and uh, anything that's just waffle would just fall to the ground, but that which isn't would take root in people's hearts and lives. So I thank you and praise you, in Jesus' name, amen.